Hey, it's Jen. And just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest on coronavirus and other stories, keep up with your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast, and it's time for the News Roundup. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's get into it. MAGA Republicans look at America and see carnage and darkness and despair. They spread fear and lies, lies told for profit and power. But I see a different America, an America with an unlimited future. That, of course, was President Biden going on the offensive in a primetime speech last night. It's a big swing as primary season wraps up and all eyes turn to the midterms. There's a ton of news to get to this week, so we'll jump right in. Wendy Benjaminson is the deputy managing editor for U.S. government news at Bloomberg News. Wendy, good to have you. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Jeff Mason, White House correspondent for Reuters. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you. And Anita Kumar is the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, always a pleasure. Great to be back with you. President Biden's primetime speech was delivered from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. He repeatedly called out what he dubbed MAGA Republicans and election deniers. Democracy cannot survive when one side believes there are only two outcomes to an election. Either they win or they were cheated. And that's where the MAGA Republicans are today. Wendy, I'll start with you. What was the president trying to accomplish with this speech? I think what he was trying to accomplish, Sarah, was to um, set the ground rules, if you will, for the midterm elections, now that we're going into general election mode. What he was doing was putting Trump front and center, as, as, as he did in 2020, as the thing to vote against. Um, he you know, had some troubles in the last few months with the economy. All that's coming back now, but maybe not fast enough to grab voters. He also has the Roe decision in his favor. But what he decided to do now that Trump is in the spotlight is to make the election again a choice between Trump and Biden. And I think that's a great way to win elections, whether it's a great way to unite the country, which is why a lot of people elected him in the first place. You know, it's it's not going to do that. You know, Jeff, just to sort of piggyback off of that, uh, the first part of the speech focused on our country being at what Biden called an inflection point with MAGA Republicans, quote, living in a shadow of lies. He ended with what he views as his policy achievements on health care, climate, gun safety, and seemed to imply his administration is just getting started. But Jeff, why did Biden give the speech now? Is it just as simple as the midterms and, and Trump in the spotlight, or is there something more here? Well, I think that's a, I think that's a terrific question. And I don't think the answer is particularly clear. Uh, The White House is saying that this was not a political speech. I asked in the briefing yesterday ahead of the speech if it was political, and Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, said uh, directly, no, it's not. But then, as you say, uh, in addition to attacking his former uh, opponent in the, the 2020 election, a potential future opponent in 2024 and his supporters, he also spent some time talking about his accomplishments. Um, just kind of as an addition to that, I don't know that it matters 
whether it was political or not. I think you could make an argument that this is one of the biggest political issues of the day. And yet the White House has insisted that it was not a political speech. And so to get back to your initial question, they would say this is not about the midterms. But I think as Wendy referenced, or Wendy referenced it's, it's all about setting up the argument uh, ahead of the elections in November and pointing out not just what Biden represents, but what the other side represents from the leader of the Republican Party, who is ostensibly still the former president, down to uh, lawmakers in Congress who are supporting him and others who are supporting him uh, and painting them as extremists on everything from election denying and the, and the terrible uh, insurrection at the Capitol to broader policy issues, such as the abortion ruling from the Supreme Court and potential future threats to take away rights from Americans. I think it's worth noting that the three major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, did not carry Biden's speech, which I think raises the questions, the question of, you know, who heard it? And then one of our listeners, Jay, from Norman, Oklahoma, emails, since Biden's speech wasn't broadcast on the major networks, most Americans are hearing about the speech through rumor instead of listening to it directly. How do we get more Americans to listen? Anita, I don't know if you have the answer to that, but what do you make of the three networks not carrying it and, and the ability of the president's message to really penetrate the public consciousness? Well, I don't have the answer to the listener's question. I think it's the, the question that media outlets have been you know, wondering about for years, right? It's how people are getting their news has changed. If they're not watching it directly, they might be getting it from social media and hearing just from like-minded people. But you make a great point here, which is, if it's if it's not on prime time, well, it was prime time, but if it's not on certain stations, not on the networks, you know, are people just hearing about it through uh, like-minded people? I, I guess I bring that up because, you know, the president really talked about sort of what he sees and, and what the other side is doing. Uh, you know, sort of, he says he's a president for all, but he was sort of talking about two kinds of people in this country. Um, and so, you know, I don't know that he changed anyone's minds. The people that are listening to him, that heard this, uh, that welcome what he's saying, are probably already with him. So it's a little bit unclear if this is going to do anything. I think what we are going to see from the president, you know, we saw two speeches this week, we're going to see some stuff uh, you know, on Labor Day in the coming weeks, he's really going to make a push. It's something that some of the people in his party have really wanted him to be more aggressive, and you see that coming. You know, I'm remembering back to the beginning of his presidency where, you know, the White House, him, his officials really didn't want to talk about Donald Trump. They didn't even want to utter his name. And there were so many references last night to, to MAGA Republicans, to Donald Trump. I think that's what we're going to see for the next couple months. And Anita, just to follow up on that, why do you think he's more comfortable leaning into that kind of rhetoric now? I really think it's it's just where we are. I mean, Donald Trump has been out there. We're going to see him make his own speeches. This is, you know, you know, Joe Biden would like it to be about other things, and it is about other things. It's you know what people are talking about today is is COVID. It is inflation. It is prices. It's a lot of other things. But this issue. Uh, that Joe Biden was talking about yesterday, really back to January 6th and the 2020 election, is something that is being talked about. It's being talked about in the midterms, in primaries, in general elections. I think it's just the where he has to be, he has to confront that. It's it's sort of one of the big issues of the day. And, and Donald Trump's going to continue to talk about it. And so if he wants to 
uh, you know, oppose some of these Republicans, uh, the the MAGA Republicans, as he says, or and President Trump, he's going to have to go there, and he did. This week, a Quinnipiac University poll found 69% of Americans agree that the nation's democracy is in danger of collapse. Generally, protecting democracy is considered a bipartisan issue. And as we've mentioned, Biden tried to carve out some space here, saying not all Republicans are MAGA Republicans. But as we know, most of the ones in high-profile positions right now are Trump supporters. So, Wendy, I'll ask you this question. What are Republicans saying about the president's speech? How are they responding? They are very much responding with with anger and dismay um, about him. Uh, you know, he did try. He absolutely tried to make the distinction between Republicans and MAGA Republicans. But I think they all feel brushed with the same uh, broad strokes, and they feel they certainly feel that the um, rhetoric about fascism was over the top, even though MAGA Republicans have been using, you know, Nazi Germany symbolism to describe Democrats for for a few years now. So that's a little ironic, but it is, um, they, they are not happy with the speech. If I can talk about the election denying thing for just a moment, um, now that the primaries are over, we have compiled a um, an analysis of this. There are something like 254 office holders or nominees in the Republican Party for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, House and Senate, who do not still do not believe, at least publicly, that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States and are promising to do things to make sure that their candidates win in the future. So that Quinnipiac poll really does touch into a real fear that I think Biden brought up last night. I want to talk more about this rhetoric around the idea of fascism and the specter of fascism in in a little bit. But first, uh, Pat in Michigan emails, the speech our president gave last evening reflected my concerns and also my view of the Republicans, that there are Trumpians and regular Republicans. It is my hope that he keeps on this track and works to bring our country together. But Ray tweets... Biden's speech obviously was an attempt to further split our country. He knows he's going to lose control of Congress. Whoever is advising him needs to be fired. So very different views there of this speech. Jeff, is there a danger in Biden tying the idea of saving democracy, which, as we said, a lot of people support, to the Democratic Party's agenda? I, I think I think that's a great question. Um, possibly. There's a danger there. I mean, I think the danger is sort of exemplified in the tweet that you just read insofar as if his goal is, is to be a president for everyone, and he has said that. He said it last night. He said it in his inauguration address. Then um, if that's the case, then specifically targeting a good chunk of the American electorate who voted for President Trump uh, and painting them with the broad brush of extremism may not help in that effort to bring people together. That said, I think he genuinely sees it as a threat, and and it is a, a deeply felt um, belief, and that's why he focused on it the way that he did. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. 
Before we move on, I do want to talk about this idea of fascism, which has been in the news this week after President Biden referred to MAGA ideology as semi-fascism at a fundraising event in Maryland last Thursday. Some Republicans have responded by comparing this to Hillary Clinton, calling Trump supporters, quote, baskets of deplorables, famously in 2016. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is demanding an apology from Biden. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. This is an extreme threat to our democracy, to our freedom, uh, to our rights. Uh, They just don't respect the rule of law. You've heard that from uh, the president. uh, And, um, you know, they are pursuing an agenda uh, that takes away people's rights. Anita, this use of the word fascism is is very pointed. We were talking earlier about the use of the directed sort of calling out of MAGA rhetoric, this word fascism, a strong word, semi-fascism. What does that mean? And why do you think that the administration is starting to employ this kind of language? Yeah, I just think as we as we talked about earlier, I, th- I think the president is just getting stronger in his rhetoric. I mean, I don't think that it was a mistake, right? You don't use a word like that as a mistake. I think that they have decided to up that rhetoric and 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 they do feel and the president does feel that there that there is this you know this threat as he said in the country the the interesting part about this is you see you mentioned Kevin McCarthy and other republicans saying that now it's Joe Biden who's dividing the country you know that is the thing that Joe Biden has said and democrats have said about Donald Trump for years Hillary Clinton said it you know that he was here dividing the country, and now they're turning that back on on Joe Biden because he he decided to use this rhetoric. So I think it'll be interesting to see in these coming speeches if he does uh, continue to use that word, um, or if he if he changes it up and and decides to go a different route. Moving on to Mar-a-Lago, the DOJ investigation into classified documents retrieved from Mar-a-Lago continues to make the headlines. Back and forth court filings from Trump's attorneys and the Justice Department reveal some fascinating details about the case. This all began with Team Trump's request for a special master to oversee the FBI's review of documents that were seized from Mar-a-Lago. Jeff, why did they make this ask and are they likely to get what they want? Uh, another good question. They they made this ask basically because they have been accusing the FBI of not being an honest broker uh, in their handling of these documents, and they would like to have essentially a third party, which is called a special master, uh, be present for and and look over some of these or all of these documents. Uh, they basically just need they they would like to have someone else involved. As to whether or not it's likely that that will happen, um, initially the judge who was a, a President Trump-appointed judge, said that she was um, leaning towards granting that request. Then this week, the court uh, delayed that decision uh, after getting a, 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 an argument from the Department of Justice that it was not necessary and, in fact, that um, that the, the President Trump and his team uh, really didn't even have the right to to be pressing some of their arguments because the documents don't belong to him. Uh, they belong to the National Archives, they belong to the government, and they were improperly taken and improperly stored. Um, interestingly, the, the former president's argument has changed uh, this week as well. In, in his new filing on Wednesday, um, they said that the Trump's team basically said it shouldn't have been a surprise and it shouldn't have been alarming uh, that there were sensitive presidential documents in his uh, possession because he is a former president. And that's a shift from some of their initial arguments, which were, which were more along the lines of the FBI is setting us up. 
So it's been it's been a fascinating back and forth, and particularly the fact that that decision has been delayed means it will continue to be a story um, in the coming week and weeks. But, but, but on that note, Jeff, quickly, you know, the DOJ filing also notes that the documents were, quote, moved and hidden that, that, they, uh, that they found there. What could that mean for Trump's defense? Well, it, I'll answer that question differently. I'm not sure about his defense, but I am. But it does seem more clearly about what the prosecution would be and what a potential indictment would say, and that would that that would suggest that the Department of Justice is considering um, indicting him for obstruction of justice. In addition to taking the the documents in the first place, then um, they're suggesting that there was evidence, as you just said. Uh, Sarah, that that they were hidden and that they that they did not uh, participate in in trying to help the government retrieve them when they were asked, and and that could lead to an obstruction charge. Wendy, I just alluded to the the uh, t- uh, Department of Justice attorneys. You know, they sent back a pretty fiery court filing of their own uh, that contained those photos that I think we've all seen of uh, documents marked secret and top secret. But there was more than that in this filing. Wendy, what does it tell us? Well, I think it, <clears throat> I think it tells us that uh, Donald Trump has never um, seen a clear line between Donald Trump, the individual, and Donald Trump, a temporary um, tenant of the executive office of the president, right? He, I think he believes he'll need those documents when he's reelected, maybe, or, you know, who knows what he's really thinking. But he certainly, you know, never distinguished between himself and the presidency. And, you know, DOJ is pretty frustrated right now. Um, you know, they, they've been after these documents going on nine months now, or they started asking for them nine months ago. They asked politely, they subpoenaed, they negotiated, and then finally this search, which politically speaking, um, you know, they almost have to come back with something criminal or it will look like um, a political act, and they'll have to be very careful about that. Well, uh, on that note, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham raised some eyebrows this week after making a dire prediction about what might happen if Trump is prosecuted. Here's uh, Graham speaking on Fox News Sunday. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle, which you presided over and did a hell of a good job, there'll be riots in the streets. Now, there's been an increase in violent rhetoric and threats since the Mar-a-Lago search, especially threats against law enforcement and the FBI. Anita, what is the impact of Graham making a statement like that? Well, you have a lot of people criticizing him, saying, you know, he's just um, sort of pushing people to do this, that he's sort of uh, promoting it almost. And, you know, he was quick to say, look, I'm not saying what I want to happen. I'm saying what I think will happen. But regardless of of how that's interpreted, you know, there just more rhetoric, this, in, you know, increasingly violent rhetoric you're seeing across the country now in the, in the wake of these, uh, this FBI search. So, uh, you know, people need to be very careful about what they say, for example, for exactly the reason that you said, the, the increase against, uh, of threats against law enforcement have gone up, uh, at least one uh, man citing um, you know, tried to attack an FBI field office. One uh, was killed by police. So there, there is this uptick in it, and it's real. And so I think you're seeing a lot of people saying to Lindsey Graham, this isn't helping. 
You know, we should note Lindsey Graham has been trying for weeks to squash a subpoena demanding that he testify before a special grand jury in Georgia. That's in connection to another Trump investigation, this one into allegations of election interference in 2020, which is just to say it's not as if he's making these riot comments in a vacuum, right? Anita? Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. I mean, he's involved. You're seeing a lot of different people. You know, people were people are looking at some of these Trump investigations and obviously they do involve the president himself, but they're also involving a lot of people that worked in the White House and a lot of people like Senator Graham. We just heard about former House Speaker Newt Gingrich uh, being asked to, uh, you know, give some testimony or give some answer some questions. There are a lot of Trump allies around the country, people that he talked to. We're not sure exactly what they did in the wake of the 2020 election. Did they try to change the results in certain localities around the country? And um, you're right. Senator Graham is one of the ones that's right there in the thick of things. We have a question from a listener, Mike, that I think, you know, Jeff might be able to answer. Mike tweets, is the Mar-a-Lago search of a former president common? If not, could it have been handled in a way that was not so incendiary? I guess, Jeff, um, I, I think we know this was this is a very unusual event, right? But how unusual is it? And, and was it incendiary? Uh, very unusual. No, no question about that. And I think the answer to how could it have been handled differently uh, at least from the perspective of of the FBI, would be they, the Trump team could have cooperated more from the very beginning. And I think actually with regard to that, the unusual nature of this, uh, some would also argue that the FBI and the Justice Department gave the Trump side a great deal of time and, and leverage and, and ability to give the documents back. And then when the when the when the Department of Justice discovered that there was that apparently there's evidence of of misleading or of um, hiding things and not participating, then that's what led to this this need uh, from their from their point of view to to have a search warrant. So concisely, uh, yes, very unusual. Um, the Trump team is 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 going to continue to emphasize that. But they apparently, according to the the Department of Justice and according to just our own visual evidence now, we can see this because of the pictures that have come out. They did not give all the documents back that were requested, and that's what led to the search warrant. Jeff just mentions the sort of cautiousness with with which the DOJ proceeded here. One of you tweets, why does Trump get a pass from the DOJ? Because he might be planning a run for president. Can I get a pass for crimes if I consider running? On that note, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced this week the issuing of new restrictions on partisan activities for political appointees inside the DOJ. Also, Wendy, this week you reported that the Department of Justice is unlikely to file criminal charges against Trump ahead of the midterms. Talk us through the thinking there. Sure. And, and yes, this, I, I would um, caution the reader that this should not be seen as giving Trump a pass. But we all remember in October of 2016, when James Comey, then, then the FBI director, came out and said Hillary Clinton had done, you know, this is, I'm now quoting or paraphrasing James Comey, had done all these terrible things with classified information, and but, but you know, it doesn't rise to a crime, and so we're just going to, like, put it aside for now. And that really upended the end of the campaign. 
And nobody knows. Um, I know that you know Mrs. Clinton certainly believes that that you know partly cost her the election, and it, it certainly just made a, a mess of everything in the final uh, days of the campaign. So what I think the Justice Department is trying to do here is to emphasize that this is an apolitical act. That the search of his documents, as Jeff so ably described, was was to get documents back that they had asked for, plain and simple but to announce that they're either going to charge him or not going to charge him, that they didn't find enough for a crime. Either one of those right before the midterms is going to make people vote on their feelings on that instead of the candidate on the ballot, instead of abortion, instead of inflation, instead of all the things that you know voters should be concentrating on. So they'll just wait till after the, the midterms and then, you know, of course, we're in the presidential election right after that, but it's not imminent. Let's turn now to some state-level politics, starting with Alaska. Democrat Mary Patola defeated former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin for the state's only U.S. House seat. Patola will serve the remainder of the late U.S. Congressman uh, Don Young's seat, so that's just until January. Anita, how big of a deal is this Democratic win, especially in a state like Alaska? Well, you had a lot of Democrats cheering it, that's for sure. They think it's a big win. Um, Obviously, the person that she is replacing or the rest of this term, you know, uh, Don Young, he had held the seat for 49 years. So it has not been a Democratic seat for quite some time. And so there are people that are uh, you know, cheering, cheering her on, uh, you know, how she ran her came, campaign, talking about how she was going to build, you know, coalitions and that she was going to work for Alaska and that, you know, that she, they are praising her for how she did that. But this is, of course, short-lived because she and her opponents will be back again in the November general election seeking the term, the two-year term. So she's just filling out one term, you know, these few months, and then she has to go back and do it again. So I think this second election that we'll see is really going to tell us, uh, you know, how what the future is going to be like there in Alaska. Moving on to Michigan, abortion rights advocates there want voters to decide if abortion should be a protected right under the state's constitution. But their proposed ballot measure hit a roadblock once it was sent to a bipartisan board of canvassers, which blocked it with a party line vote. And that came after the state's Bureau of Elections essentially signed off on the measure. Uh, Wendy, have you been following this? And what is Republicans' strategy here? What does it seem to be? I I think Republicans are looking at what happened in Kansas, a very conservative state, where the voters were asked themselves, do you, you know, not the legislature passing laws, but directly to them, do you want abortion banned in the state? And they resoundingly said no. So then um, Michigan is faced with the same ballot initiative, and Republicans on the board of canvassers looked at this and said, I'm, I'm guessing, said, you know, well, we don't want to risk Um, being unable to restrict abortion, so we're going to keep it off the ballot. I believe this initiative now goes to the Michigan Supreme Court, which, you know, are also elected on a partisan basis. Um, We'll see how, how they respond. But it is interesting that when you put the matter directly to the voters, the outcome is sometimes different than their elected representatives will choose to do. 
Right. And I think one of the interesting differences here between Kansas and Michigan is that, you know, Michigan's was was voter initiated and would have uh, essentially protected abortion rights, whereas in Kansas, voters said no to uh, an amendment that would have opened the door to restricting abortion. But either way, you know, the the outcome uh, in Kansas looks very good for abortion rights supporters. And I think in Michigan, abortion rights advocates, you know, obviously are hoping to get this on the ballot and have a chance uh, to see what Michigan voters would say. You're right. We'll see what happens uh, before the Michigan Supreme Court. I think that's a, a big thing, a, a big question to follow as we look ahead to November. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. On to Oklahoma now. The state secretary of education is demanding a former teacher's license be revoked over a state law that bans teaching about certain topics. High school English teacher Summer Boimier resigned earlier this week after posting QR codes to banned books available digitally through the Brooklyn Public Library. Here she is talking to NPR member station WNYC. Nowhere in any of my directives does it say I can't put a QR code on something. So I I saw that as an opportunity for my kids who were seeing their stories hidden to maybe skirt those directives slightly. Jeff, have you been following this? uh, And what's been the fallout from this story? Well, I think it's it's a, a broader or it's part of a broader issue, at least in some states, to ban books. And um, and the pushback in this case directly from a teacher, and then the political fallout is that the the secretary of education Ryan uh, Walters wanted to escalate it more by then uh, revoking her teaching certificate and saying that she should not be allowed uh, to teach further. She had already resigned from that school, um, but Walters was suggesting that she shouldn't be allowed to teach at another school. I think the broader issue is a, is is one of censorship, and of you know, and not only that, but also a discussion about whether or not um, certain issues about sexuality and about race uh, should be taught in schools, and at what time, and at what point in a child's education, and it comes sort of again to kind of tie our all of our conversations together into a political divide of some conservatives feeling. Uh, strongly that that those issues should not be taught in schools, and um, and others feeling differently. And in this case, it it um, manifested itself in this debate over banned books. We heard from Jay in Oklahoma who attended the high school where the teacher taught. Um, earlier in the show, he emailed us, and he we heard from him earlier. He emails us again to say. Quote, I remember a time when my alma mater taught us about the importance of empathy, the freedom of information, and free speech. I am ashamed that my alma mater is caving to Oklahoma's attack on access to books. You know, Anita, revoking a teaching certificate sounds extreme, but Oklahoma is just one of 36 states that have adopted or introduced laws that restrict teaching about certain topics, including racism and LGBTQ issues. What are we seeing so far around the enforcement and consequences related to these laws? Yeah, I think it's different in every place, right? And just because, uh, you know, the the Secretary of State is calling for it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen. We're going to see, um, you know, see what happens in these specific investigations. But Jeff's exactly right. I mean, we're seeing, 
this all over the country in Republican-led states that are trying to ban specific books or limiting discussion. It's really becoming, in the last year or two, such a such an issue all over the country. We saw this in the Virginia governor's race, and I, uh, you know, where the Republican who won was talking a lot about this this type of issue about what's being taught in the classrooms, and it's really resonating with people, with some voters across the country. And I think that people are taking sort of a a look at that race and saying, you know, this is something that we should talk about politically. I do believe that there are. Uh, people around the country, as we see from this, from this, these Republican um, attempts to limit, that really do feel that some students are too young to have these discussions. So I think it's going to be con- continue to happen around the country, and it's going to continue to be a political issue that we're going to see, um, you know, even in in November's elections. Now let's head to Mississippi, where the state's capital city is experiencing a water crisis. After excessive flooding and rains, a water treatment plant failed, leaving up to 180,000 people without reliable running water. And it's not the first time Jackson has faced major water supply disruptions. Uh, Anita, Jackson is a majority black city and had already been under a boil advisory for a month before this happened. Why is the city experiencing these water issues? Yeah, I mean, you're right about that. It, it's it's a city that's had sort of has having and has had a tough time with poverty and crime, you know, access to the basic services, including trash ship pickup and road repairs and you know, sort of infrastructure problems. And there are people saying uh, there, why, why isn't anyone really looking at what's going on? You know, I've seen a lot of reporting where residents are saying, look, we're used to this. This is something that happens periodically. They sort of put a Band-Aid on it. They try to fix something small, and then they're back in the same problem again. So you'd mentioned the heavy rains that sort of push this to the forefront this, this time around. But again, the question is sort of, are they going to just have a small fix to this to get people uh, drinking water to get this going again? Or are they going to put real money into the infrastructure that's needed uh, to fix this permanently? It, it's sort of astounding that it hasn't gotten as much attention. Um, this is, you know, a major city in Mississippi. And, and it's really, you know, I, I've seen people saying, why isn't this getting more attention? Um, and so it has gotten some, but it feels like if it was other places, it might have gotten more. In terms of the government response, Mississippi's Governor Tate Reeves has declared a state of emergency due to Jackson's water crisis. Until it is fixed, it means we do not have reliable running water at scale. It means the city cannot produce enough water to fight fires, to reliably flush toilets, and to meet other critical needs. The Mississippi Emergency Management Agency will take the state's lead on distributing drinking water and non-drinking water to residents of the city of Jackson. Replacing our largest city's infrastructure of running water with human distribution is a massively complicated logistical task. Almost unimaginably complicated. Meanwhile, Mississippi's National Guard has been activated to respond to the crisis, and President Biden is sending resources to the state. You know, Jeff, infrastructure has been uh, you know, sort of front and center for President Biden, and he has had some success getting that package through. But here we are looking at a terrible crisis in, in a place like Jackson, Mississippi. How much can the administration do? 
I think you're spot on to say that infrastructure has been a key issue for the Biden administration and the passage of that infrastructure law on a bipartisan basis was a huge success. I think in some ways this um, situation in Mississippi is an opportunity for the White House and for President Biden to say, look, infrastructure was an issue that needs to be addressed. We are addressing it. And here's another example of why uh, this is a problem that, that needs to be faced. I also think, I mean, it's pretty clear that to the White House and to anyone listening or talking about it, it's outrageous. It's outrageous that this has happened in a uh, major city in the United States. It's outrageous that it's happening in a city that is 80% black or African-American, according to U.S. Census data. And that is something that I think you'll hear this White House and, and Democrats emphasize as well because of the, the overt politics of that um, and the implications of that in 2022. Moving on to health, on Wednesday, the FDA authorized a new tool aimed at slowing the spread of the coronavirus. A new booster shot specifically designed to target Omicron subvariants will be available as early as next week. It's the first redesign of the vaccine since its initial rollout in 2020. Wendy, what can you tell us about this new shot? Well, it's um, certainly shows that we are becoming accustomed to the idea of rolling out new vaccines and um, and getting them distributed to people. Um, it's less of a, um, you know, there's less fanfare around it because there is some normalization. And it turns out that, you know, a lot of the people who should be getting the vaccines um, are choosing not to. I think um, I was told by our health reporter a statistic that something like only 40% of people over age 65 have gotten their third booster, let alone their fourth or even now their fifth. Um, and so, uh, you know, you're still going to have people coming down with, with COVID and spreading it to the vulnerable. But it's, I think it shows that we may have finally gotten a handle, we, the United States, have finally gotten a handle on how to, how to keep rolling out these boosters. Uh, you know, on that note, health, health experts are worried that people will be slow to get this new type of shot. Anita, is that just because of fatigue with, you know, one booster after another? Or, or what, what is that worry about? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely that. If you look at the numbers of how many people were fully vaccinated, it's less than, of course, uh, public health officials would want to be. But then you look at who got their booster, if they were eligible, and it's it's not that as, I mean, obviously, it's still a lot of people, but it's not nearly what health officials would want. And it, as each shot rolls out, you kind of see some people who are happy that there's something else. They're lining up to go to go get this next shot. And there's some people that, you know, they simply haven't kept up. They sort of feel like, look, they got their initial uh, vaccination and they're done. I mean, you can just sort of see how people are reacting uh, to COVID in the United States by by when you travel. You know, it's it's different in different parts of the country. Um, it's different how people are talking about it, how public officials are talking about it. You haven't heard the, the president talk about it as much as he used to either. There are, you know, and I think he, he said in his, his speech that, you know, we're starting to get back to normal or, or I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you know, there are in many, many ways, Americans, whether they should be fully or not, are going back to some of those actions that they took before COVID even hit, before the pandemic. And so I think that there are a lot of people struggling with this. Some people still aren't doing that, and some people have just moved ahead. 
And that's, and that's what we're facing with these shots as well. Meanwhile, we should note that monkeypox continues to spread in the U.S. There are nearly 20,000 confirmed cases so far. That virus is much less dangerous than COVID. But this week, health officials in Texas did report the first possible death from monkeypox. So the fight against that virus continues as well. Let's wrap with some troubling big picture news for Americans. Life expectancy in the U.S. dropped significantly for the second year in a row. Americans born in 2021 are now expected to live just 76 years, the lowest lowest it's been since 1996. We've, of course, been in a pandemic. But Jeff, is this the main reason for the drop or are we seeing other factors here? I think it is the main reason for the drop. Uh, and so hopefully with with the uh, with the pandemic moving and with with vaccines coming and or more boosters coming, like we were just talking about, uh, this this trend will reverse. But um, it certainly had an, a huge impact on life expectancy, um, in, in, as, as shown in this report. And one of the other troubling uh, pieces of that report is that um, life expectancy in particular was, was dropped among American Indian and Alaska Native uh, people. Uh, between 2019 and 2021, it said that uh, their life expectancy fell by 6.6 years to 65 uh, point two. So there's a lot of really concerning data in that report. The U.S. also saw a decline in test scores. The National Assessment of Educational Progress found that fourth graders' scores in reading sank to their lowest level in more than 30 years. Math scores also dropped to levels not seen in decades. Wendy, why are test scores dropping so significantly? And again, is this a pandemic effect or is something else going on here? Well, it seems like, Sarah, that we can blame the pandemic for just about everything that's wrong. But, I mean, it sort of stands to reason that we had certainly one year, one full year of basically homeschooling while parents were also trying to do their jobs and teachers were struggling to teach remotely, which is, you know, not the best way of teaching. And then when the kids finally got back to school, as we all recall, last school year, there was this chaos. The kids sneezed, they closed the school, people had to come home. And there was so much disruption back and forth, um, you know, and now we have teachers who are just had it up to here with, um, you know, with the situation and are leaving their jobs. And so it stands to reason that amid all of that, the kids' test scores are dropping. Um, so I think there's just needs to be this some sort of return to normalcy. I mean, you know, normal, steady progress is how children learn. And uh, the, this chaos just needs to calm down for test scores to resume going up. I think the big question is just how long that recovery will take, which I think we're seeing in so many areas, uh, you know, so many after effects and continued effects of this pandemic. And uh, as many people have said, um, a toll that we'll probably be measuring for years to come. One other big story we want to note from this week, Serena Williams plays in the third round of the U.S. Open today. She defeated the number two player in the world, Annette Cantivate. So uh, she's not done yet. Something to watch today. Wendy Benjaminson is the deputy managing editor for U.S. government news at Bloomberg News. Jeff Mason is the White House correspondent for Reuters. And Anita Kumar is the senior editor of Dandridge and Ethics at Politico. Thanks so much to our panel for being with us this week. Stay tuned. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast.
You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. And it's time for the global edition of the News Roundup. Let's get started. A U.N. delegation finally made it to Europe's largest nuclear power plant after months of negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. There has been increased military activity, including this morning, until very recently, a few minutes ago. What did IAEA Director Rafael Grossi find on the trip to Zaporizhia? Plus, the last leader of the Soviet Union and the man many credit with ending the Cold War dies. Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall. And Pakistan experiences the worst flooding in its history. How is climate change affecting the world's fifth most populous country? Joining us for these stories and more, Idris Ali. He's Reuters national security correspondent covering the Pentagon. Idris, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Also with us, David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. David, always a pleasure. Hello. And Lara Seligman, who covers the Pentagon for Politico. Welcome back, Lara. Good to be here. And Laura, I'll begin with you. This was an incredibly complex and dangerous mission for the U.N. What did the team find at the plant once they arrived yesterday? So just taking a step back, this is a very dangerous situation that we have here. You have the nuclear power plant, which is Europe's largest one of its kind, right in the middle of this massive clash of firepower. You have the Russians and the Ukrainians shooting at each other, launching airstrikes and artillery just outside this nuclear plant. Um, As a backdrop, Russia captured the plant in March, but it is still run by the Ukrainian engineers, um, but they have been basically at gunpoint trying to do their jobs. And Russian forces have actually been storing military equipment inside the plant. Now, of course, international officials have been very worried about an accident occurring, but a team from the United Nations nuclear watchdog has been able to arrive at the plant this week. And the idea is try to confirm its safety. Um, Now, this is where things get a little murkier. So we did hear from the head of the IAEA this morning saying that the physical integrity of the power plant has been violated. But the issue is that they haven't been able to see all of the key areas that they need to see so far, or at least that's what Ukraine's nuclear agency has been saying. They're they're accusing Russia of misleading the, the IAEA team and showing them only staged areas of the plant in order to keep it from making an impartial assessment. So there's a lot we don't know. It's obviously an, an active battle zone right now, active shelling going on, but we're sort of starting to see the results of what this team is finding on already, it doesn't look great. And now that the IAEA team has made it to the nuclear power plant, Director Rafael Grassi says they plan to stay. We are not going anywhere. The IAEA is now there, is at the plant, and it's not moving. It's going to stay there. I worry and I will continue to be worried about the plant until we have a situation which is more stable which is more predictable. It is obvious that that the plant uh, and the physical integrity of the plant has been violated several times. By chance, by by, uh, deliberation, uh, we don't have the elements to assess that. But this is a reality. David, how much can this IAEA team do to stabilize the situation? I think the fact, the political signal sent by the fact that they could, even though there's this very sort of hostile war of words between the Russians and the Ukrainians about what the Russians are using this plant for. Remember, the Ukrainians say that the Russians are basically treating this as a shield, that they're launching artillery strikes on Ukrainian forces, knowing that the Ukrainians would not dare fire back at this giant 
uh, a nuclear power plant. So the fact that the Russians have agreed to allow this visit to take place, and we saw the uh, the Russian government today in Moscow say that two inspectors can stay, I guess is a sense that uh, they do accept that the international community has a right to be concerned about the safety of this. I thought it was very interesting, the BBC interviewed a former chief inspector for the IAEA about what is the real danger of having fighting in this area. And these plants are actually incredibly thick, sort of solid concrete domes over the nuclear reactor. So apparently it's not like a shell strike that's the danger. But Oli Heinonen, the former chief inspector, said this rather sort of scary thing, that, that it is plausible in certain circumstances that if a whole bunch of things happen at the same time, particularly that if the power gets cut, that they need to keep that plant cool, then you could see it start to leak in the way that the Fukushima plant in Japan leaked in 2011 because its power for cooling was cut off, if you remember, by the tsunami in 2011. So I think there is a sense that this is a very, very dangerous situation. I think it's slight cause for optimism that the Russians allowed this to take place and are allowing these two inspectors, or I think the IAA wants to have five inspectors, but two, the Russians have said, can stay. And Idris, Ukrainian officials have accused Russians of shelling a corridor designated for the IAEA. Russia accused Ukraine of shelling a nearby city. No one is willing to back down here. Obviously, the idea of a radiation leak is very concerning. What would the implications be? Yeah, I think the implications uh, that officials here in Washington and in European capitals are really worried about is sort of a Chernobyl-like effect where, you know, like sort of David said, it's not so much a strike hitting some of the reactors. It's more about what happens with the fuel, the spent fuel. Um, what if there's a breakdown that can be fixed because the workers who work there are too tired because they basically haven't been able to leave the area for a while. So it really has implications not just for Ukraine um, and sort of southern Ukraine, but what if that um, spent fuel starts leaking into other parts of the country? It has implications for Europe. And, and, and it's, it's then sort of brings up the question of, you know, what happens if that's the case? Will the Russians um, allow the United Nations, other Western countries to come help save the plant, rebuild it? So it, it basically, there's a lot of concern about what would happen if things start breaking down. And I think the concern is that there won't be um, much action or, or many answers quick enough to sort of deal with the, a potential uh, explosive situation. Bottom line, lots of ways things could go wrong there. Laura, this week Ukraine launched its counteroffensive against Russia in the southern region of Kherson. Russia captured the port city of Kherson early in the six-month invasion, but it's unclear how well the counteroffensive is going for Ukraine. So why is President Zelensky focused on retaking this area? So, again, the, the backdrop to this, like you said, is that, that Russia captured Kherson, the, the sort of southern area of Ukraine, in its initial invasion back in, in February. And since since then, the battle has kind of moved on to the east of the country in the Donbas, which is where Russia is focusing most of its its firepower. Now, what the Ukrainians um, are doing, which is is really smart, uh, actually, is they've amassed a significant force outside of Kherson city and has started attacking Russian forces there. Um, and ahead of time, they've been able to use U.S. provided rocket systems and other weapons to destroy a lot of Russian infrastructure in the in the area. For instance, blowing up airfields and crucially the bridges over the river that lies to the east of Kherson city, which is Russia's only resupply route that they use to send reinforcements to 
all their troops west of the river. So the, the reason this is, it seems like it could work is because you basically have the Russian troops trapped in Kherson and they either have to, they, they basically have to surrender if, if they don't win the battle because they can't get resupplied. Um, and what then happens is uh, they have a choice. Do they then surrender or does Russia then peel off troops from the east, the fight in the Donbass, to try to reinforce the south? And that's where you could see Ukraine really weakening Russian forces here. Now, it's unclear how the battle is going right now. Um, my sources are telling me that Ukraine, they assess that the U.S. assesses that Ukraine has a good chance to retake territory, some territory, maybe not all of the territory that was lost. Um, Ukraine has painted a much rosier picture, of course, saying that they've gotten through Russia's front lines and are taking back territory as we speak. But as um, Russia and Ukraine have not, the shelling, the active shelling has not allowed reporters or anyone to really get in there and kind of see what's going on. It's really hard to get a clear picture right now of what's really happening. David, I want to zoom in a little more on Russia. On Wednesday, the European Union made it harder for Russians to get visas. What is this about? So the headline is that if you're a Russian, you can get a visa for the entire of the European Union pretty much. This Schengen visa that you can get from any one European embassy. What has changed is that they, in 2007, they had this agreement where it only cost 35 US dollars. And it was really very simple. You only had to produce a few documents. Then you could get a visa at, say, the Italian embassy, which let you roam across the entire of uh, Europe. And that has become politically very contentious. And you saw the uh, the European Union foreign policy chief, chief, Josep Borrell, explaining that for some member states, the European Union is just not acceptable to see Russians traveling for leisure and shopping, as he put it, as if there is no war raging in Ukraine. And so you saw particularly Eastern European countries, uh, some of the former Soviet republics in the Baltics, very keen to see some sort of big sign of suspending or banning visas uh, for people to just come and go shopping and have holidays. You saw very interesting pushback uh, from a group of countries, some of them openly pro-Russian countries like Hungary, run by Viktor Orban. But you also saw the Germans and the French saying, well, hang on, do we really want to punish all Russians? And there was a, a confidential note to other countries that was leaked, where the French and the Germans were basically saying, we should let people who are opposed to the war still come to Europe, so young people and artists. So you're seeing Europe trying to straddle. Do you punish the whole of Russia or still try and focus your punishment on the government of Vladimir Putin? Idris, uh, Russia turned off the tap to Europe this week, at least for a few days, although this may be temporary. Operators shut off gas from Russia to Europe via the Nord Stream pipeline on Wednesday, citing repairs and maintenance. So remind us, first of all, how much gas does Europe get from Russia and why is this such a big deal? Europe is heavily reliant on Russia for its gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, and, and the majority of it comes through Russia. Um, and one of the interesting things <laughs> that happens in war is it, it rarely stays in the military domain. It spills over into diplomatic, um, cultural, and, and we're seeing it spill over into the economic realm in this case. And um, it's one of those situations where gas, in this case, is something Russia has leverage um, over Europe. And they've basically been using it intermittently to turn it on and off to really send a message to the Europeans that you're reliant on us. Um, the Europeans and the United States have said that Russia is basically weaponizing energy. Um, and, and like you said, currently they've turned off um, gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline a few times. Um, they basically said they're going to turn it off because of repairs until September the 3rd. But the bigger concern is what happens when winter comes. Um, 
most of Europe is reliant on this gas, especially countries like Germany, um, one of the large with the largest economy in Europe. And so they are trying to basically store gas in the event that things worsen during the winter months. Um, and I think Russia is now realizing that that's the case, and they're slowly tightening the screw so that countries like Germany are going to have a tougher time sort of storing the gas um, and then using it in winter. Um, and, and, you know, on a macro level, it's basically led to a rethinking within Europe about how reliant they need to be on Russia. And Germany is sort of aiming to be um, able to replace Russian gas imports by mid-2024. It's something that Washington had been warning, warning Europe for years and years and years um, before the invasion, but it seemed like Russia, uh, sorry, Europe had basically ignored it. And now I think we're seeing the impacts of it in real time. Before we move on from Russia, former Prime Minister Mikhail Gorbachev died this week at the age of 91. His funeral is tomorrow, but current Russian President Vladimir Putin will not be there. He's denied the former Prime Minister a state funeral. Now, Gorbachev and Putin had a complicated relationship. Here's Gorbachev speaking through a translator in a 2012 interview after Putin won a third term as president. I think it'll be hard for him, given his nature, to do this. But there is no other way for him but to move toward greater democracy in Russia, toward real democracy in Russia, because there is no other way for Russia to find a way out of its dead end. And uh, here we are. So Putin's spokesperson says he will not attend Gorbachev's funeral because of a work conflict. Laura, it's hard to read this as anything other than a slight, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's certainly correct. I mean, it's interesting that um, the the relationship that that Putin and Gorbachev had, they obviously had very different um, ideological visions for for Russia. And um, one one thing I wanted to mention is that it came out that um, that uh, Gorbachev's interpreter had told Reuters that. Uh, he died shocked and bewildered by the Ukraine conflict um, because of everything that Putin has done and that he was psychologically crushed, quote unquote, by the worsening ties between Russia and, and Kiev. Um, now, uh, you know, this the slight that you mentioned that Putin not going to the funeral, um, he did express his his deepest condolences, but but Gorbachev has in the past explicitly criticized Putin. Uh, for what he's done with Russia, writing of costs associated with Putin's authoritarian, authoritarian, excuse me, actions in 2017 for Time magazine. And Putin, at the same time, has made it clear that he saw the dissolution of the Soviet Union as humiliating for Russia. So this obviously has deep, deep roots, has gone back a long way. And even in death, this isn't something that they could get past, obviously. And many Western world leaders also will not be in attendance at Gorbachev's service because they're currently barred from attending in retaliation for Russian sanctions. Idris, this is a public memorial, but what might it actually end up looking like? Yeah, it's one of the interesting things because, you know, in so many ways, he's the exact opposite of of the way um, Putin treated um, Boris Yeltsin, who he gave a state funeral. Uh, there was a national holiday. Um, and in that instance, in 2007, we saw a lot of Western leaders go there because the relations were really, really quite different. Um, so if we sort of fast forward to today, um, it, it's pretty clear that no senior Western leaders will be going because of the Ukraine war, um, you know, 
if I'm a guessing person, I would imagine the U.S. Uh, ambassador to Russia would be attending it. Um, you know, it is important to note that Moscow and the Kremlin has said, you know, he's going to be buried at a public ceremony in Moscow's Hall of Columns. Um, and sort of, you know, the state will help organize it. But at the end of the day, um, it, it's, a, it's a real contrast um, to, the, to the 2007 um, um, funeral for Boris Yeltsin, who Putin clearly agreed with. And, you know, it's one of those things, again, that that is another, um, is facing another impact because the Ukraine war and, and, and relations with the West. And David, for those who were not around in the 80s, which I wish I could say was myself, but I can't, uh, remind us about Gorbachev's legacy. What was his dream for Russia? How does Russia of today compare to that time? So I think the Russia of today is a kind of repudiation of everything that he stood for. So he was not a pro-American uh, kind of dreamer who wanted to turn Russia into a kind of capitalist democracy. He was a, a, a sincere believer that socialism uh, with a kind of human face was a better model than Western capitalism. He had been very influenced by the fall of Stalin, uh, or rather the denunciation of Stalin uh, by, uh, by, by Khrushchev. And Gorbachev absolutely stood for the idea that Soviet socialism could be a humane system. It didn't have to rely on lies and repression and gulags. So when he became General Secretary of the Communist Party, took over in 1985, he set about dismantling the most repressive and the most economically kind of irrational parts of the Soviet empire. There's no evidence that he intended to be the last Soviet leader, or that he understood when he began this reform process, the forces that he had unleashed, that as soon as you admitted that this was lies and cruelty and irrationality that was keeping the system together, that it would just fall apart. So when he finally dissolved the Soviet Union in 1991, he was in a way a kind of heartbroken figure. History in the West, weekly remember him as the man who dismantled the Soviet Union, who allowed the former Eastern European countries to escape without being crushed by sort of attacks uh, from tanks in the most part. There were some tanks he sent into the Baltics, but the Polands, the Czechoslovakias, they were allowed to leave. That's his tremendous legacy. I think it's worth remembering that in today's Russia, but also where I am here in China, Gorbachev is remembered as a villain, as a man who is naive, as a man who didn't realize how dangerous and evil the West are. So the message, if you are a nationalist in Russia, if you support Putin, uh, is that Gorbachev was this naive man who didn't realize how bad the West was. That is absolutely the message the Chinese have. Their view is that Gorbachev was a, a historic criminal whose lesson is that you should never trust the West and you should never release your iron grip. And that is how Chinese leaders will remember Mikhail Gorbachev. Moving on now to the Pacific. David, I'll go back to you for a moment. We have a lot to talk about. The Solomon Islands got attention this week for barring visits by foreign military ships. And we should note officials have allowed a U.S. Navy hospital ship that's expected to stay for several weeks. So what's going on here and what does it have to do with China? So if, you, if, if anyone remembers watching kind of World War II movies about the fight in the Pacific, the, the, the incredibly important fight for Guadalcanal in 1942 was basically America starting its counterattack against, against Japan. Guadalcanal is one of the Solomon Islands. It's a speck of, of land in the middle of the Pacific, about 2,000 miles north of Australia. And it has always been an incredibly strategic location. For the longest time, it was basically under a kind of Australian tutelage. They had Australian police who kept, you know, who helped them out, uh, keep security. Uh, it was actually a diplomatic ed uh, enemy of China's. It, it had diplomatic relations with Taiwan, which is uh, China's adversary. And the Americans basically ignored it. The Americans shut the embassy in the Solomon Islands 29 years ago. They basically thought we don't have to worry about this part of the world. China has ambitions to become a much more global power, and it is focused on places like the Solomon Islands. So it, re it restored diplomatic relations. We now have 
uh, the Chinese signing a secret security deal that they could potentially send security forces in to prop up the very unpopular and somewhat autocratic leader of the Solomon Islands. We've got a $100 million deal to build uh, telecom towers by a Chinese company, Huawei. And now they are saying they're putting a halt on American, and in fact, it's a Royal Navy British ship and an American Coast Guard ship that were denied permission to land. And this is basically China putting pieces on the chessboard all over bits of the world that the West had got complacent about and ignored. And Lara, the U.S. plans to reopen an embassy in the Solomon Islands after nearly three decades. What do the State Department and the military hope to accomplish? Well, I think the idea is to uh, prevent China from be- from getting this foothold in, in the Pacific. Um, these islands are very strategically located, for um, especially when it comes to the, the U.S. Navy. And the worry is that a, Chinese pre- a growing Chinese presence there uh, could provide a, a key foothold for Beijing to kind of counter U.S. Navy, Navy power. And, and of course, um, with the, the secret security agreement that the Solomon Islands has, has signed with China, this would allow them to call on China to send military forces to the country if needed, which some experts say could open the way for Chinese troops and naval ships to to establish, strengthen their, their presence there. And this, of course, could be a big problem for the U.S., the U.S. Navy, which is used to, uh, as they say, a free and open Indo- Indo-Pacific and being able to sail uh, and fly wherever we want, we want to. Um, and of course, this comes as China continues to make aggressive moves around Taiwan. That's the sort of really big news in in the region right now, um, including sending drones to overfly Taiwanese territory. So this is just one of several significant moves that China has been making in the Pacific in recent weeks. And it's something that U.S. officials in the Pentagon, in uh, the White House are really watching very closely. Idri, something Laura just, Laura just alluded to, uh, Taiwan shot down an unidentified civilian drone this week that was in its airspace. This is airspace around a Taiwan-controlled island that's just 2.5 miles from mainland China. This is, of course, about a larger ongoing dispute between China, Taiwan, and the U.S. But Idris, what are you watching for next here? Yeah, I mean, the thing with Taiwan and China is it seems like there are incremental steps on the escalatory ladder every couple of days, every couple of weeks. You're right, in itself, shooting down a a civilian drone usually doesn't lead to much of an escalation. If there are two countries that get along, it's it's pretty easy to get over. But this is just the latest um, sort of escalation in a trend um, which comes after sort of China had been sending warplanes and and warships after Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Um, And I think the biggest concern that we're hearing at the Pentagon and and in Washington generally is the risk of an accident. You know, what if um, a drone is sent um, and it crashes into some sort of, you know, helicopter, or what if the Taiwanese shoot down something that they're not meant to shoot down? So I think the bigger concern is not just sort of the act of shooting down a, a drone, but the fact that it could lead to a miscalculation, a misunderstanding, and then it could really, really spiral. So I think that's what we're watching for as, as things progress. Lara, the U.S. military has just a handful of troops in, a, in Taiwan What do we know about the plans that are being made by the U.S. military in the region? Are they just waiting to see what happens here? 
Right. I think that the approach that the U.S. military is taking to Taiwan right now is one of de-escalation, right? They don't want to to create any situation where an accident could occur. I mean, we saw the U.S. cancel a big missile test a couple of weeks ago um, after Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan and China did these really unprecedented military exercises. So they, they canceled they canceled the missile tests. They have said and and. NSC spokesperson John Kirby said many times, you know, we are not seeking to escalate. This is China making a big deal about this. There's no reason to think that the speaker going means anything provocative. So really, it's just de-escalation, de-escalation. But of course, it's something that that China not you don't know necessarily what China is going to do next. And so for that reason, I think we've seen in the past week or so, um, the U.S. sent uh, several Navy ships, two cruisers, which is an unusual move um, for the region. Usually they send destroyers, but this time they sent two um, guided missile cruisers, which are the shooters, through the Taiwan Strait. And that, while it wasn't meant to be provocative, it was meant to show that the U.S. military is committed to freedom of navigation. We can fly, fight, and sail, as they say, anywhere that we choose. And, and I think that the the reason they were doing this is to de-escalate and make sure there are no um, there's no risk of accident on both sides. And Laura, specifically, you mentioned how Speaker Pelosi's visit that was just about exactly a month ago uh, to Taiwan. China wasn't happy. How much of this is continued fallout from that? Uh, you know, does there seem to be lingering aftermath from from uh, specifically Pelosi's visit. Yeah, definitely. I think that Pelosi's visit and China's reaction to Pelosi's visit has fundamentally changed the status quo in the region, actually. And that's what officials are really worried about right now. China has, ever since they started the military exercises in response to Speaker Pelosi's visit, they've been uh, salami slicing their, their way into creating a new normal in the Taiwan Strait. So you see every day now China is sending ships and aircraft across um, around Taiwan. They're sending aircraft in particular every day crossing this median line, which is the halfway point between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland um, in, along the, 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 the strait there. And you've seen China flying drones now, as we talked about earlier, over this uh, very small island, which is off the coast of, of China. And, and we actually saw Taiwan actually shot them down uh, a couple days ago for the first time. So this is definitely a new normal. And this is exactly what China has been wanting to do and really looking um, for an excuse to do for quite some time now. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this sort of fighting in the gray zone and not active conflict, but sort of salami slicing their way into a new status quo. Now back to our weekly roundup of top international news with Idris Ali, Reuters national security correspondent covering the Pentagon, Laura Seligman, who covers the Pentagon for Politico, and David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. David, as we mentioned, a long-awaited U.N. report says that China's treatment of the Uyghurs may amount to, quote, crimes against humanity. This report was issued just 11 minutes before the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights stepped down. So what does this report mean for the Uyghur people? I think you have to divide it between what the report said and who said it. So what it said was quietly devastating. Uh, But it wasn't especially new. If you've been reading media reports 
some of the outstanding reporting done by people like the New York Times in recent years, uh, by the Associated Press, uh, by various think tanks around the world, by people using satellite images. The report took the same approach, which is you basically draw on Chinese government documents, uh, some of them leaked, some of them uh, proudly issued within China, and satellite images. And you can build up a picture that since about 2017, 2018, really appalling things have been happening in this far western region of Xinjiang, where about 10 million of the population are Muslims, uh, most of them from the Uyghur minority, which are basically a kind of Turkic minority, much closer to peoples of Central Asia than uh, anything uh, in China. Since 2017, in the name of fighting Islamic extremism and terrorism, we think more than a million Uyghurs have been put into re-education camps, uh, some of their children put into high security orphanages. Uh, there has been the demolition of mosques, uh, imams being jailed, university presidents being sentenced to death uh, because they had written history books that uh, said that China was not the eternal ruler of Xinjiang. Just really appalling things. That has all been out there. The fact that it was in this UN report saying that all of these leaked documents appear to be authentic and they've done their own interviews with Uyghurs uh, backing up uh, things like forced abortions, forced sterilization of Uyghur women to try and reduce the Uyghur birth rate. This astonishingly cruel and ruthless rule that we see in Xinjiang. That is incredibly important. But who said it? The UN. That is also unbelievably difficult for China to cope with. And we know that because Michelle Bachelet, the author or the, the, the commissioner for human rights, as you say, they invited her on a propaganda tour of Xinjiang earlier this year. Many Western governments didn't want her to do that under Chinese control. She did it. That's now why she stood down, not seeking a second term because the backlash was so severe. And she admitted herself the day before this report came out that she was under intense pressure uh, from the Chinese not to release it. But she did eventually release it. It's a very solid piece of work. It's a very calm but utterly damning piece of work. And for the Chinese, that's a real blow because the Chinese have been investing massively in winning votes at the UN, particularly in the Human Rights Council, rallying their allies, particularly in the developing world, to say that America is the war crimes uh, uh, criminal in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, that America has no moral standing to criticize China, and that all of these reports in the New York Times, uh, in The Economist, to be, to be honest as well, that we're all liars, that we're making up these facts, that this is a hoax by anti-China forces. But now the UN, which the China says it respects very seriously, has said the same things. It's an astonishing accusation of really serious crimes. Moving now to Afghanistan, where a suicide attack at Friday prayers in the western Afghanistan city of Herat killed a high-profile scholar who was close to the Taliban and more than a dozen civilians. There's been no immediate claim of responsibility, but Taliban leaders vowed to punish the perpetrator. Friday's attack was one of many that have targeted mosques. And staying in the region for just a moment, a listener, Michael, emails us, Two climate-related disasters are not getting enough attention, he says. The flooding in Pakistan, which has displaced millions of people and caused untold agricultural damage that will impact everyone in the country. The second is the inexcusable infrastructure failure in Jackson, Mississippi. Both crises impact black and brown people the most. So let's talk about Pakistan. An unprecedented monsoon season has led to what the country's climate change minister, Sherry Rahman, is calling a climate catastrophe. It's been absolutely unprecedented uh, and relentless even today from 7%, uh, 700%, uh, the rainfall is at 500%. The temperatures are too high otherwise and, and 53 degrees is, is uninhabitable uh, for the summer. We never had a spring 
and it is becoming uh, a challenge that is of epic proportions. We are very clear. There is at this point, we are at maximum overstretch. Idris, more than 1,200 people have been killed, including more than 400 children, millions displaced. What is the situation in Pakistan right now? Yeah, I, I think it is quite catastrophic. Um, I mean, if you uh, or your readers um, ha- have seen, you know, if you look at the satellite imagery, the literal geography of the country in the south has changed. You know, rivers have started coming up in satellite imagery that weren't there two or three weeks ago. And, and basically what we've seen is about 200% above average rainfall. Um, and that has caused flash flooding. And, and so basically 33% of the country is now underwater. About 15 million people have been affected. Um, $10 billion in damages initially, which will probably rise. And, and sort of this is all on top of massive inflation at about 25%, unemployment, um, a political sort of instability. And so when you package it all together, it really doesn't bode well. And I think what's more concerning um, for Pakistan and, and people in the region is that this is uh, sort of a systemic issue, right? Um, climate change is only going to get worse in the region. Um, many of these countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh um, aren't huge emitters, but are the ones bearing the brunt because they're so far um so so much lower than the sea level. And so it's one of those issues where you can deal with the short-term causes, which is sort of, you know, the, the, the rain, but how do you deal with it in the long term? You know, they're talking about now trying to rebuild in a more sustainable way. So I think it's one of those um, natural disasters that might have a silver lining in that it could hopefully sort of teach and allow um, countries in the region to rebuild in a way that's more sustainable and less susceptible to floods like this in the future. And of course, Pakistan has suffered intense flooding before the 2010 super flood killed nearly 2,000 people. Lara, we just heard Idris address the fact that this is coming at a time of political instability and a time when Pakistan is facing other challenges. Um, And it's hard to be prepared for these massive swings in the climate. But how prepared, Laura, was the country for the level of destruction that they're seeing this time around? Right. I think I think as as Idris has sort of laid out for us, I think that this is a really difficult time for Pakistan. I don't I don't think that they were very prepared for this at all. And, um, it, you know, as Deep said, um, one thing we, we haven't talked about so much is that is the melting glaciers in, in Pakistan, which haven't really been nothing of that has been addressed either. It's It's been a huge contributor to the flooding that we're seeing right now. Pakistan has more glaciers than any other country. Um, and but it, the, the good news is that help may soon be on the way. The UN is seeking $160 million in emergency aid for the flooding. The U.S. also announced recently that it's going to be sending $30 million in aid. Um, And humanitarian relief in some parts has started to arrive, but the efforts have been hampered. Going back to this issue, this question of whether Pakistan was prepared, huge infrastructure damage. The floods affected over 2,000 miles of roads, 150 bridges, 
just really, really devastating. And another problem we're seeing is um, waterborne diseases. Um, and this is really affecting in particular children in Pakistan. And authorities have been trying to step up efforts to ensure clean drinking water to especially these refugees and people that have had to leave their homes. But it, it really is a big problem. I've never seen anything like, I mean, a third of the country underwater, that's, that is really catastrophic. And, and I think we're not, we have not seen the end of this problem. In other climate news, the World Meteorological Organization is predicting the first, quote, triple-dip La Nina of the century, which will span three consecutive North American winters. Laura, I'll go back to you briefly. You know, La Nina usually shows up once every two to seven years and leads to extreme weather events like flooding, droughts, and heavy rainfall. How significant is that storm event, um, especially as this becomes more frequent? Right. So what what they're calling a, a triple dip La Nina is um, basically we're seeing the phenomenon La Nina for the third straight year. And as scientists say that this is poised to last through the end of this year. So this is really not not a very frequent event. And what, what happens is the conditions involve large-scale cooling of ocean surface temperatures in parts of the equatorial Pacific. And that changes weather patterns worldwide, which leads to drought and and flooding, this kind of flooding that we've been talking about. Now, you can think of this in contrast to the warming that is caused by the better known El Nino, which is the opposite phenomenon. And um, the one thing to note is that this, is, when you hear cooling, um, you, you think, oh, this is the opposite of global warming. And I, I would just caution that while the UN has said it will temporarily slow the rise in global temperatures, it won't actually halt or reverse this trend of global warming that, that we're seeing. But it is another strange weather event that, that we've been seeing so many of in, in the past few years that um, are related to this global warming. And, of course, it is these extremes that often make it so difficult to plan for. Now to Iraq, where political protests turned deadly this week. Supporters of the influential political leader Muqtada al-Sadr stormed the Republican palace in Baghdad's heavily fortified green zone on Monday. The clashes between armed militias and protesters left more than 34 people dead in Baghdad and other areas of the country. Idris al-Sadr encouraged his supporters to stand down, and most of the fighting has stopped by now. But what prompted this, and how will it affect the country's political landscape? Yeah, so Muqtada al-Sadr is basically this influential um, cleric turned politician and he holds huge sway in the country and it's sort of been his modus operandi to escalate the situation to a point where there's a crisis and then de-escalate it and the most recent um, crisis was born out of the October parliamentary parliamentary elections when his party um, were the big winners. Um, they didn't have enough seats to, to form a majority, so they started trying to work with the Sunni and Kurdish groups, um, leaving out the rival um, Shia groups. Um, and earlier this week, he said he was frustrated. He was um, quitting politics, essentially, um, because the other Shia rival groups had not made enough inroads in corruption and improving governance. And that really just caused his supporters to, 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 to get very angry, head to the green zone where the embassies and much of the Iraqi government is located, and basically start essentially infighting between rival Shia groups. Now, in most countries, when there's a political crisis, you know, there might be a bit of violence, um, but Muqtada al-Sadr and um, 
the rival Shia groups um, are essentially political groups with massive militias that have formed over the past 20, 25 years. And so when there's infighting, it very frequently leads to violence. Um, he did call for calm, which was hailed, but the fundamental issue, which is the fact that, you know, so much of Iraq is um, influenced by groups that are linked to Iran, in some cases, pro-Western groups, um, hasn't been dealt with. So I think a lot of analysts and officials are sort of concerned that while this bout of um, violence may have ended, the fundamental issues still haven't been dealt with. And I think there's a lot of concern that it, it's just waiting to explode once again. On to India now, where the Supreme Court has ruled that blended families, same-sex couples, and other households deemed atypical by the court will now receive family benefits under the law. The move expands the legal definition of family and is one of a series of rulings pushing back against the country's more conservative values. So, David, when the court says family benefits under the law, what does that include and how significant is this? It's very significant, and the Supreme Court is extremely powerful as far as the law goes, but there are very conservative states where these things are not always going to end up in a kind of neat lawsuit. This actually began not with a gay marriage case, but with a, a nurse uh, from the north of India who had been denied maternity leave because she'd already taken leave uh, for her stepchildren, for her husband's children from a previous marriage. And the court's ruling uh, said that, look, many families just don't conform to the expectation of an unchanging mother and a father and children, and we need to adjust to that. And it is the case that in family courts across India, you see these very ugly uh, extended fights over things like child custody, where someone who is a single uh, mother, an unmarried mother, or even a mother who goes out to work uh, can be attacked by the extended family who will say that she has, you know, she's the fact that she's going out to work or is a single mother means that the child should be given to the father or to the grandparents. And so this is really a fight between conservative uh, India, which has very great political sway in many states, and a Supreme Court that has been making uh, some more progressive uh, uh, rulings in recent years, including the decriminalization of, of, of gay sex itself in 2018. And this is an attempt really to reflect the fact that mores, at least in the most liberal parts of India, in the big cities, some of the big cities have been changing. Very quickly, David, I want to ask for your take on the replacement for UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson being announced next week. Queen Elizabeth uh, will welcome the new leader at her home in Scotland. Uh, how unique is this? Um, well, I looked it up. In 1908, another British prime minister had to go to France to the resort town of Biarritz to be appointed prime minister by Edward VII because Edward VII was on holiday and didn't fancy interrupting his break. Uh, but he did give the new prime minister breakfast in his hotel suite. So that was that was nice. We'll have to leave it there. Our thanks this week to David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, Idris Ali, Reuters National Security Correspondent covering the Pentagon, and Lara Seligman, who covers the Pentagon for Politico. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Matthew Simonson has been producing our on-demand shows. Aileen Humphreys is our editor and the producer of 1A On Demand. Chris Castano is our digital editor and Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. This is 1A.